All right, well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue our series called It Is Good. This is week three, and uh, today we're going to be dealing with a topic that has affected all of us on some level, uh, but it's a difficult topic to talk about, so I appreciate your prayers as we dive into this. Um, I'm going to give you some caveats in just a minute before we do jump into it, but our hope and our prayer through this series is that we would get to the place of health in our relationships, in our lives, uh, full of love and romance, where we could say it is good. It is good. Now, this series is based out of a chapter in the New Testament. Uh, It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth called 1 Corinthians, and chapter 7 has been our focus uh, for the duration of this series. And uh, there's three statements the Apostle Paul makes where he starts out by saying, it is good, and so we've named the series, It Is Good. But I do want to say that um, aside from the specific statements that he says, it is good, all of us should have a hope and a desire Uh, to be able to say of our relationships, of our love lives, of our singleness, of our stage in life, that it is good. And that takes work, and that takes patience, uh, and that takes a lot of grace. And so today, as we continue this series, uh, we're going to pray that God's grace would would be with us. I want to read the first nine verses to kind of catch us up, in case you weren't here the first two weeks, and then we'll um, go right along into today's topic. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, and we'll start reading in verse number 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry or not to have sexual relations with a woman. Again, uh, the context of this chapter is the Apostle Paul addressing questions or concerns from the church at Corinth that were written to him in the form of a letter. So he's writing about these matters to him. And he says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He's saying it's okay to be single, but there is a standard should you marry. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We talked about the importance of being givers in a relationship and not just takers that were driven by duty and not just desire. Even though we don't like to look at it that way, it works a lot better that way. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you, whereas I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that gift. And we talked about the fact that wherever you are in life, it's important to see it as a gift of grace. That word for gift in the original language is charisma, which can be interpreted as gift or grace, and sometimes both, the gift of grace. And so there's grace for you in the season of your life where you were. So then we took it a step further last week, and we focused specifically on the unmarried and widows. Uh, Verse number 8, the Apostle Paul continues, and he says, Now to the unmarried and to the widows I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So if you're ever struggling as a single with passion burning within you, you can just get married. and You can be assured that that passion will leave. That's not what he's saying, but um, 
He's saying it's okay to be single and that some people have a call in their life to be single. And that's okay. It doesn't make you less of a person. It doesn't make you incomplete. It doesn't make you look down upon. It just means that God has a special grace like the Apostle Paul for some people to live their life outside of the confines of marriage. And that is okay and that is good. But it's important for us to control the fires of passion that burn within us and make sure that they're placed in the right places. Now, today we're going to continue and we're going to talk about a topic that's affected us all on some level, and it's the topic of divorce. And uh, I'm going to just read today's passage, and then I want to give you kind of four statements to kind of process today through the lenses of these four statements. Uh, Let's start with verse number 10 as we read today's passage. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord... A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, She must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Some pretty specific statements by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, which I believe as Scripture still applies to us today. And let me just kind of give you four statements that I want you to process today's message through the lens of. Four disclaimers, if you will as the Apostle Paul makes these statements to married people. Number one, um, I want us to process this scripture through the lens of a statement that says, this passage is intended for married people. So if you're not married and you're in a relationship, I don't want you to leave today saying, I have to stay in this relationship forever if you're not married today. Okay, there's a, there's a special process called dating by which you get the option of dumping someone. So if you're in a relationship that's not healthy, that is not good for you, um, if you're in a relationship where people tell you, people close to you tell you, I don't think that relationship is good for you, you should listen. You've got to tick it out. It's your chance to not make a mistake. You should be very selective in who you marry. Okay, so this is specifically written to married people So don't take the context of today's and apply it to a dating relationship that would be a misuse of the passage. Number two, this passage is written to the church. This is a passage written to people who claim to be followers of Jesus. I think often we apply standards that are intended for Christians to people outside of the church and we tend to throw stones and we appear to judge people who have never claimed to live according to a standard that was intended. Okay? So if you're here today and you would say, I don't consider myself a follower of Jesus, 
There is no standard trying to be set for you. No one's telling you how to live your life. But I would say that if you claim to be a follower of Christ, if you want to live a godly life and please Him and bring glory to Jesus with your life, then these are words that are written to you in this stage of your life for this moment. Number three, I would say that we need to process today's message from this day forward. This is a sermon written to you today in this moment that has an intent to allow God's Word to shape your life from this day forward. Do you remember when you were married? If you're married, you recited some vows, you repeated something, and you said, from this day forward, for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, richer for poorer, till death do us part. From this day forward, I want this to be applied to you. And I say that because we all at some level have been affected by divorce. Some of you in the room have been divorced. Some of you in the room, your parents have been divorced. Some of you in the room, you have people close to you who have gone through divorces and you've seen the process of divorce and how ugly it can be and it has affected you on various levels. And I don't want you to hear the words of Paul today and look back over your life with guilt and shame and leave today acknowledging over again a mistake that was made in the past or something that happened in the past and allow it to control your life from this point forward. These words were written from this point forward. So if you're married today in a relationship of marriage today, then these words are intended for you. Okay? I believe that there's grace for our past, that we all have a history and a past, and the beautiful thing about Jesus is he doesn't hold our past against us. And so no matter where you've been, no matter where your parents have been, no matter where the people closest to you have been, starting today, we believe that there's grace and that God's word is applicable to our life. And fourthly, um, I want to say this, and I'm careful in saying this, but I decided that I did want to say it, um, is I don't want to encourage anyone after hearing today's message to stay in a relationship that's harmful to you. I don't want you for the sake of a pastor reading a scripture to you to allow yourself to suffer harm. And by harm, I, I predominantly mean physical harm. By which you say, this is just God's call on my life for me to be abused in whatever way that is. I don't want you to misinterpret today's scripture to mean that you are stuck in the worst situation of your life and there's no way out, there's no hope for you. I would in no way encourage you to stay in an abusive relationship for the sake of Jesus Christ. God hasn't called you to suffer harm in a relationship. Your relationship should be vibrant and life-giving. If it's not, then I believe that there's hope and grace through Jesus for it to be healthy and vibrant. But some of you... Um, may be or may know someone who just needs to call the police and just needs some real help. So please don't hear me today say, just suck it up and deal with it. Um, I would never be so careless in my words. So with those caveats, um, I want to reread this scripture and then we're going to um, go to Ephesians 5. If you have a Bible, I want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at some passages in Ephesians 5 as well. Are we doing good so far? we got the groundwork going. We're going to jump into it. Verse number 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Now, this is important to note that the Apostle Paul frames the statement he's about to say by saying, this, these aren't my words. These are the Lord's words. 
Not meaning that everything else that he said doesn't really matter, but meaning specifically that he's going to reference a direct quote from Jesus, from Matthew 19, chapter number 9. And this is a statement that he's referencing from Jesus. These are the words of Jesus, where he says, A wife must not separate from her husband. A wife must not separate from her husband. Biblical grounds for divorce. You ready? Three ways that your marriage relationship can end according to Scripture and be considered biblical grounds for divorce or the end of a relationship. Number one would be death. If you're married and your spouse dies, then you're no longer tied to that marriage. That's pretty obvious. Okay? The Apostle Paul gave instructions last week that says that you're allowed to remarry should that be the case. Uh, number two would be marital unfaithfulness. If there is an unfaithful, if there is uh, a spouse that hasn't been faithful, then Jesus specifically in Matthew chapter 9 gives permission for there to be a divorce. But outside of that, then there is not really any biblical grounds for divorce. In other words, marriage is different from dating. I know that some of us practice dating a lot, and we got used to the process of saying there are things that I don't like, and so I'm going to change who I'm dating. That doesn't apply to marriage if you desire to be in God's will or live according to what he teaches. So that's the statement from Jesus. It's a difficult statement. It's a high standard that is set for marriage. Marriage is for life. It's for uh, till death do us part. Uh, according to Scripture, there should be no option for ending a marriage outside of a few particular situations. Then he continues. But if she does... Now, the Apostle Paul is making a statement here that I think is important. When he's making a statement that says a wife can't divorce her husband. And then he follows it by saying, but if she does. In other words, life happens. We're all not perfect. There are going to be moments where we mess up, where we don't live up to the standard that God has set. Now, we could sit down and meet and hear story after story of bad marriage after bad marriage, and many of us would be convinced in a lot of situations that divorce is the best option. Okay? So Paul's acknowledging here, divorce is a reality. Okay? It's, it's not a forbidden fruit that is never partaken of. That there are times because life happens by which people end up in divorce. So he acknowledges that divorce will happen, and he says, if it does, listen to what he says, another standard, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Jesus in Matthew 9, 19, verse 9, takes a step a verse further and says that if the, he's speaking of a man, if the man does remarry, then he's committed adultery. In other words, there's a high standard. God looks at marriage as a supreme institution, as a divine covenant, as a serious commitment, that it should not be broken or traded in, that it is for life. Okay? Now that's a, that's a difficult standard. Okay? And our culture 
doesn't live according to that standard. And it's important for us to realize that if we're going to live as followers of Jesus and please Him from this day forward, if we are married, then we should set our mind on removing the word divorce from any conversation that we ever have. It should not be an option. There should not be threats of divorce. There should not be um, manipulation that controls things in a marriage by a threat of divorce, that we should live lives at peace, reconciled with the fact that we're going to be together until we get old, until one of us kicks the bucket. That's God's perfect will. But even if it doesn't happen, we're going to see that there is grace available to us. And a husband must not divorce his wife, just so we're all on the same page. Verse 12, he says, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, meaning this isn't a direct quote from Jesus. These are my thoughts um, as the Holy Spirit is inspiring me in this letter to address questions that you've probably asked about divorce as you've written to me. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, in some situations, two non-followers of Christ get married. If Jesus saves one of those individuals. So now we have a Christian and a non-Christian. If you're single, please hear me. You will save yourself so much pain by marrying another Christian. That is God's desire and God's will for your life. Please don't unequally yoke, as Paul says in Ephesians, yourself to a non-believer. But if you're in a relationship and you are a Christian, and your spouse is not, then the Apostle Paul says that that if that spouse is willing to leave with, your, with you, then you must not divorce her. So it's important for us not to allow the grace that we've received in Jesus to give us permission to leave people who may need the grace that we've found. That just because we've received from Christ and we would love to share that faith with someone like-minded, that we don't have permission just to leave someone high and dry because it feels convenient or because we want something better for our lives. And this is the reason. Also, if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Not to say that your faith is enough to save your spouse, but it is enough to say that your faith will affect your spouse. And to give up on any hope of allowing the love of Jesus to shine through you into a lost or an unsaved or a non-follower of Jesus would be a selfish alternative that would be contrary to God's best for you in the moment that you're in. Now, I've, throughout my history in the church, have known several women who have spouses, who have husbands who are not Christians, and it's a difficult journey. I've also known a few Christian men who have had non-Christian wives, and it's a difficult journey. We're going to talk next week about remaining in the situation that you're in, and we're going to kind of take this a step further. But know that if you're in a a marriage relationship, if you're a Christian, just because your spouse is not a Christian doesn't give you the right to leave that spouse. And then he acknowledges something that we all already know. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Sometimes children are affected greater than spouses when it comes to divorce. That's just an unfortunate thing. 
And Paul is saying that we need to acknowledge that sometimes it's best to stay together for the sake of the kids. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman, woman is not bound in such circumstances because God has called us to live in peace. So if they refuse to stay with you, then you're allowed to let them leave. You're not required to remain single because someone not of the faith has left you. You're not required to chase them down and beg them to stay. If they have made up their mind to leave and and they want out, then the Apostle Paul acknowledges that sometimes it's better just to live at peace and not try to create confusion. And then he makes this statement, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It is such an important truth to understand the impact that you have on your spouse, on your significant other. This covenant of marriage was designed in such a way that you contribute to the well-being of the person that you've committed your life to. And he's asking the question here, how will you know, even if you have an unbelieving spouse, whether or not they'll be saved because of you? You can't just assume that they've rejected Jesus for life and you'll never be able to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You don't know the impact that you will have on someone. Divorce is difficult. When I was five or six years old, my parents were divorced. I can remember the pain of the conversation when my parents told me that they weren't going to live together anymore. And I can remember when my mom packed my brother and I in some belongings and we drove over to my grandmother's house and lived with her for a time. I remember being shuffled back and forth as a young child. Some of my earliest memories would be my parents who worked different shifts going from one parent to the next, as their shift ended, I would be passed on to the next parent. And I don't have, it in the moment, I didn't have the full knowledge of the extent of my parents' marriage and why they were getting divorced. I just knew that in that time that it was painful. I knew that, I knew that they weren't happy and that apparently this was necessary, but I just knew that it hurt and it broke my heart. But one of the greatest experiences of my life, and unfortunately this isn't the reality for most people who get divorced, was attending my parents' wedding when they got remarried. And I really want to encourage you to be here next Sunday because next Sunday I'm going to interview my parents. And they're going to share some details with you that will be helpful. And they're going to share some experiences that they've had where they've seen God do miraculous things in them so that we can understand some of these passages a little more clearly. So, so please be here. But what I want to do today is I want to jump over to Ephesians chapter 5 and I want us to try to process the design that God has for marriage and why it's so important for, for divorce not to happen among Christians. Why he has set that standard. And to do that, I want to start with Ephesians chapter number 5, starting in verse number 31. 
The Apostle Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, and this is what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a truth that was fashioned in the Garden of Eden when God himself created the institution of marriage. When he saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, not meaning that he didn't have a wife, but meaning he was the only human of his kind. And all the other animals would never bring him the companionship that God intended for him. And so he created from there the human race by creating marriage. And he took from Adam and created Eve and gave her back to Adam. And the two became one flesh. So Scripture says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. Now this is a a miraculous thing that takes place. It's deeper than just some contract that is agreed upon between two parties. It's, It's more, it's bigger than just two people saying, let's just live together and have some tax breaks because we say that we love each other. This is like a covenant for life. We don't particularly understand the word covenant in today's culture because we are driven by so many contracts, but covenant was a really big thing, specifically in the Old Testament and specifically with regards to marriage. Do you know in the Old Testament that when two parties created a covenant together, they would do some crazy things to signify the covenants? Like, for example, um, in one point in Scripture, uh, a cow, a bull, is cut in half from head to tail and laid open. And the two people walked between the two cows, between the two halves of the cow, like seven times back and forth, stating the covenant they were making. And they kind of ended that covenant by saying, if we don't keep our end of this covenant, then may we become like this bull. Serious. Like, like they did big things to signify covenants. It wasn't just a good idea or something they wanted to try or experiment with. And God designed marriage with that type of covenant commitment involved. But notice what the Apostle Paul says in the very next verse. He says, this is a profound mystery. Like, how do you fully understand two lives becoming one? I mean, how do two people who have distinct personalities, who have distinct backgrounds and histories... How do they come to be one united person, living as a whole unit, no longer living individually or separately, no longer living with their own selfish motives in mind, but living together? It's a profound mystery. It's difficult to comprehend and understand. But he helps us understand by saying, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Christ and the church Do you know that the relationship between Christ and the church is the picture, God's best, for marriage? That the relationship between Christ and the church is the model for the relationship between husband and wife. And we're going to read this in the verses previous to this statement that he's made in just a few moments. But you know, one of the things that is equally a mystery as two becoming one is one becoming two. 
I mean, to think that two people who loved each other so dearly, who connected on such an intimate level, who gave everything for a relationship, would find themselves in a position where they can't even talk without an attorney in the room, who are fighting over possessions and trying to figure out what life is going to look like and trying to get what's best for them out of what's remaining between the two. That's difficult to understand. I mean, how do, how do two people who love each other so dearly get to the point where they can't even stand one another? We're going to talk about this in an interview next week. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to kind of materialize this. And, and some of you understand this. Some of you know this. But no one ever goes into a relationship even considering the worst possibility for that relationship. And the truth is it doesn't just happen, that it takes place over time. It's important for us to understand some of the things that take place and understand the model between Christ and the church so that we can understand our roles in marriage so that we don't find ourselves in that position. So I want to go back and, and read the instructions that the Apostle Paul has given to married individuals. I know that this is, these are words that come from a man who wasn't married when he wrote these words. Some scholars believe that he had been married previously and his wife had passed away, but we do know that he is unmarried when he's writing these words, and no one wants to take marriage advice from someone who's not married. But we have to understand that these are God's words to us, that we accept God's word as relevant for today, just as it was in the context that it was written. So let's back up in Ephesians 5, and we'll start reading in verse number... 22. Actually, verse number 21. Verse number 21. Instructions for husbands and wife. If you're married, these are instructions to you. These are God's words to you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to look at the relationship between Christ and the church should be the model of the relationship between husband and wife. But Paul starts this set of instructions for husband and wife by saying, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you're not married, what your ideal marriage looks like. But if it simply involves someone else making your life better, then you misunderstand marriage. Marriage isn't simply an opportunity for someone else to enhance your life. It's an opportunity for you to enhance someone else's life. And the best marriages are marriages that are submitted one to another. Where a wife submits to her husband, we're going to talk about what that looks like. When a husband submits to his wife, we're going to talk about what that looks like. But the mystery of one becoming two really starts to happen when 
we turns into me again. You know, before you're married, it's me and you, and it's you and me, but when you're married, it's we together. But when you start living as you and me again, and you don't submit to one another, and you start finding yourself longing to get something out of someone that would benefit me rather than living for we, then you're going to start down a slippery slope that's going to lead to a place of resentment. See, there are things about your spouse if you're married that you once loved. Women will say, I just, oh, he's so funny. He just always makes me laugh. And then years into marriage, what are they saying? Can you ever be serious? You never take anything I say serious and it gets on my nerves. So the things that we adore, the things that we admire, become the things that we resent over time if we allow ourselves not to live united, not to submit to one another. And I would just say this, if you're single, it's important to know who you're marrying. Because that person isn't required to change for you down the road. Think about that. If you fully know who you're marrying, then you aren't going to be surprised by them years down the road. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to, we want to highlight our strengths and we want to hide our weaknesses through the dating process because that gives us a better chance of connecting. But if that's the extent of our dating relationship and we don't take it further and fully know who we're marrying, then the things that we once admired are going to be the things that we resent down the road. And if we fail to submit to one another and accept one another and our weaknesses, then we're going to, we're going to grow in frustration. You know, you know this, is, this is how married people find themselves in difficult situations because, have you ever heard of the 80-20 relationship rule? The 80-20 relationship rule says that on average, at best, you're going to be content or you're going to love about 80% of a person, but there's always going to be that 20%. There's always going to be that thing about that person that just kind of, I wish you would change that. I wish I could fix that about you. That you got that 20% that just really gets on my nerves. If we're not careful we can get to the place in a relationship where that 20% dominates the relationship. And we can say, I can't stand your 20%. And then what happens? Someone at the office, someone we see, they got a great 20% that we're missing. And we start believing a lie that says, that 20% would make my life so much better. And we forget all about the 80%. The 90%, the 87, whatever it is. For my wife, the 62, I don't know. Hopefully it's more positive than negative. We forget about the 80% because all we can think about is the 20% that frustrates us. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves chasing 20% and losing 80%. And we'll find ourselves in a position where that 20% wasn't as big as a deal as we once made it to be. 80% is great. The 20% requires grace. You've got a 
I've got a 20%. We need grace from one another to surrender and submit to one another so that our relationship can stay united. Small foxes can ruin a vine. Song of Solomon, that's a quote. Small issues, insignificant things can grow and become huge mountains in relationships if they're not submitted to one another. So we've got to submit to one another. But then he speaks to wives. And he says, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. This is important. He's not saying here, Wives, you need to be a slave to your husband. He's not saying here, Wives, your whole role as a wife is simply to serve your husband and to, be, uh, to meet every beckoning request that he has and to, to make it your life's goal to make his life as convenient and easy as possible. He's not asking wives here to become servants. He's saying, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Now, how do we submit to the Lord? It's wholeheartedly, right? We surrender all of us to all of him. We don't get to go to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, you are an incredible God in moments where, you know, I'm broke, when I'm sick, you know, and you offer so much to me. But when things are going good, I kind of want to venture outside of this relationship and just have some fun. And then when I need you, I'm going to come back. We don't get to withhold a portion of our faith from Jesus. We surrender wholeheartedly to him. And wives, likewise, are called to submit completely, wholeheartedly to their husband. He's not saying your husband is God. Don't take it that, to that stage. But surrender, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So many marriages get this backwards. And it doesn't work. God has called the husband to be the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit to their husbands in everything. In everything. I can't tell you the amount of times over the last five years or so in this adventure that God's called my wife and I to of starting a church and pastoring a church where the only thing that got me through a weekend was my wife submitting to me. And what I mean by that is my wife has done a great job of coming alongside me and saying it doesn't matter how difficult or how bad or how hard it gets. God's called us to this and if that's where God's led you, I'm going to come right along and I'm going to support you. There's also been times in our marriage where we've had some issues. Where there was friction because we weren't completely on the same page. And that wasn't just her fault, it was my fault as well. But we've had to learn to surrender and submit to one another completely. But then he transitions and he talks to husbands who seem, after those first few verses, to get the better end of the deal, right? If you're a husband, I mean, God's called your wife to submit to you and everything. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good deal. But then he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're called to love wives 
as Christ loved the church. Now the church submits to Christ, surrenders to Christ wholeheartedly in everything, but Christ died for the church. He gave his life. He gave everything. He gave up heaven. He gave up everything for the church. Now it's clear that the wives aren't just to be slaves to their husbands to make their husbands' lives better, but it's a mutual submission by which the husband carries the responsibility of loving his wife in such a way as Christ loved the church that we would give everything. We would lay down our ambition. We would lay down our pride. We would lay down any motivation in life outside of our wife and we would give it for her that she might be everything that God's called her to be. He says that Christ gave himself for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. If we're not careful, husbands, we can live our lives in such a way that we bring out the worst in our wives because we don't give ourselves up for them and we demand things from them and we make statements that we don't think are big deals but they interpret as really big deals that would cause them to think that they aren't blameless and they aren't cherished and they aren't worth you giving your life for. See, when two become one, it's this mutual submission one to the other. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. We are to be life-giving to our wives. We are to care for our wives. Our wives should be strengthened by us as men. And if they submit to their husbands as God's called them to, and the husband loves his wife as God's called him to, then there will be unity. So any dissension in a marriage, any division in a marriage, any hard time that a marriage goes through can be tracked back here. Well, the husband isn't loving his wife as Christ loved the church, or the wife isn't submitting to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Now, I don't want to boil it down to being just that simple, but that's the mystery that Paul's talking about of two becoming one. That two people could live in such a way that they give themselves completely one to the other. And it takes work, it's difficult, I'm not making it out to be just some simple equation or formula for a perfect marriage. There is no perfect marriage. I would say this of myself as well, because you're in it. Because I'm in it. And if there are no perfect people, then there are no perfect marriages. But here's what I love about Christ for the church. Is that Christ pursued the church when the church wasn't worth pursuing. Think to Jesus' disciples, if you will. When Jesus needed his disciples the most, 
when he was being betrayed in the garden by Judas. He was being handed over to be arrested. He was being betrayed by someone who had followed him for probably three years and had learned from him, who he loved, one of his 12 closest followers. He was betrayed, and yet he still died for him. When he was being arrested, you remember Peter followed at a distance? Jesus had told him the night before, at the Last Supper, one of you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, I would never deny you. And sure enough, when he needed Peter the most, most people would say, Peter was nowhere to be found. I don't even know the man, he said of Jesus. And Jesus died for people who would betray him, who would turn their backs on him. We know this because when Jesus was resurrected, you know who he went and found? Within the 40 days, he went and found Peter, who had denied him. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't call him out for his mistakes. He didn't point out his wrongdoings. He didn't blame him for his condition. He said, I love you. Continue my work. Go feed my sheep. I love you. Go feed my sheep. And over and over throughout Scripture in the New Testament, continuing into our day, we serve a Jesus, we serve a God who pursues us even when we aren't worth pursuing. We turn our backs on Him. We forsake Him. We forget about Him. We live as if He doesn't exist. He's just convenient from times to time. And he still pursues us. He died for us while we were still sinners. Think about that. That's the love that Jesus offers to the church. That a church that was far from him, that was full of sin, with that knowledge, he loved so much that he went to a cross and was crucified. A Roman crucifixion. He died for the church. Because he loved the church in the midst of her mistakes, in the midst of her sin, in the midst of her downfalls and her weaknesses. And I just want to say to us today, specifically to those of us who are married, that the call that God has on our life requires grace to work. The call of marriage doesn't work without the grace that Jesus demonstrated for the church. We will make mistakes. We will make bad decisions. We will hurt and harm one another. But if we're willing to throw in the towel because of a few mistakes, it's almost like it's a slap in the face of Jesus because we're receiving a type of love that we aren't giving. Now, please don't hear me boil it down to that simple of an equation. There are times where marriages will end. They're difficult. They're ugly. Sometimes it can't be avoided. But too often, we treat marriage so lightly that if it doesn't benefit us, we just want out. Because we want to find something that will benefit us more. 
And the call to marriage is a call to surrender. It's a call to submit. And I want to ask of us to pray for one another in our marriages. Not so much that we'll be perfect in our marriages so that our marriages will work, but so that we'll learn what it means to give grace to one another. That the 20% that we grow to resent over time will be the 20% that we'll learn to give the most grace to. God hasn't called us to try to change people, to make them fit our lives better. He's called us to submit to people. Opposites attract until you're married, and then opposites attack. Unless there's grace, unless there's mercy, unless there's forgiveness. And we could look at example after example of Scripture of this theme of grace given to one another, but I just wanted to share with you today that God has called us to a high standard when it comes to marriage. If you follow Christ, divorce isn't really an option. But it's not so much a call to get something out of marriage as it is an opportunity to give the grace of Jesus every day of your life to someone that you're united to. And it's difficult. Listen, twice in the last month, I'm confessing here, twice in the last month, I have heard of marriages gone bad and my reaction to my wife was to say, oh, I would end that in a heartbeat. I wouldn't put up with that. That wouldn't happen. And you ever said this to your wife? You let that happen and see what's going to happen. <laughs> I can't tell you what my wife says to me if certain things happen. But we're so quick just to say, oh no, that would never happen to me. I wouldn't put up with it. Yet Jesus never said, hey God, no, that one, I'll die for them, but that one, it's not going to happen. He doesn't exclude anyone because of circumstances. And the call to marriage is the same commitment for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. So what I want to do as I end our time together is I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that those of us who are married, I don't even want to pray that we would have perfect marriages as much as I want to pray that God would help us to learn what it means to submit to our spouse through the model that was set up by Jesus for the church and that he would help us to give grace. There are maybe some people in the room who need to receive some grace. There are people in the room who may need to give some grace. There may, be, there may be some friends that need to give some grace. There may be some kids that need to give some grace. There need to be some, some co-workers who need to give some grace. There, there, may, there may need to be some forgiveness that takes place. And I just want to pray that, that God would help us to surrender ourselves and submit ourselves in such a way that grace is the thread of our relationship. And if we can get to that place, if we can ever get to that place, 
then we're going to make it. And it's not about surviving, but it's about experiencing God's best. And it starts in that place of humility and surrender and grace-giving. Let me pray for us. Father, we've all on some level been affected by divorce, and my prayer in this moment is that those who have been would not leave today feeling the weight of any guilt or shame because of something that happened in the past. I pray that your forgiveness would cover a multitude of sins and that your grace would carry us forward. But I pray for every married individual in the room, every couple that's represented in this room or who may be hearing this sermon, that you would allow us to covenant together, to withhold, to uphold a covenant of marriage in such a way that would honor you. And the example that you've set for us as you love the church would be the model by which we seek to live our lives. I pray, Lord, that grace would be at the heart of all of us who need forgiveness, all of us who have made mistakes, all of us who have messed up, all of us who have betrayed, all of us who have offended, all of us who have hurt and caused pain. Would you allow grace to carry us through? And for all of us on the opposite end of that hurt and that pain and that betrayal, would you allow us to give grace And see marriage simply as an opportunity to extend the grace of Jesus every day of our lives to the person that you've allowed us to be united to. I pray, Father, for marriages that may be in a difficult season right now, that you would restore the marriage, that you would allow there to be forgiveness and grace given that would restore and heal and mend, that you would uh, bring all of us so close to you that it would help us become the person that we need to be to fulfill this marriage relationship for our spouse. For every hurt, every difficulty, would you, Father, grant us grace and mercy, heal and restore marriages, and allow us to move forward with a steadfast commitment to honoring you and the greatest relationship that you've extended toward us. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.